Hi, I'm Evan Duncan, the senior pastor of the Baptist Church of Westchester in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm so glad you found our podcast channel. On it, we share our weekly messages, and from time to time, you'll see some other things as well. If you want to learn more about our church or see how you can contact us, visit bcwc.org. Can I sit with you? It was the first day of college orientation, and I was terrified. I was coming out of my senior year feeling like I knew who I was, at least back home, but here? When I moved to Westchester to prepare for my career as a middle school band director, spoiler alert, that didn't happen, (laughs) I felt like I was moving to the big city. The parking situation alone made me want to turn around and find a college that was closer to cornfields. My hometown, though not too far from here, was pretty rural. (laughs) Country music at the school dance, bring your tractor to school day, friends waking up at 4 a.m. before the 5.45 a.m. school bus to milk the cows, rural. And now here I was at Westchester University, a first-generation college student, contemplating changing my personality in some way, maybe. I could be someone who knows sports statistics or wears a backwards hat or maybe stops talking for more than 10 minutes. (laughs) Be yourself, just not all at once, said one of my classmates before I left. (laughs) I think I made a big mistake, I thought. My eyes blurred over the stress, and then came they came back into focus when I saw two people sitting at a table starting to talk to one another. I felt the intense need to slowly back away, sprint, take a bus home, and maybe find a time machine and stop myself from getting into this horrible situation. What am I doing here? Asked my fear. Can I sit with you? Asked my hope. Sure, they both said. Twelve years later, two of those people are friends I count as family. Maybe you've had a situation like this. You were in the cafeteria and you didn't know who to sit with, or maybe it was a new job and you wondered if it was going to be something that could work out. Maybe you found yourself wrestling with doubt and confusion in a fight-or-flight kind of scenario fearfully hoping to belong, to have a place where you might encounter strangers who could at least be friendly, maybe could become like family. This, to a far more dramatic extent, was the case for the disciples as they gathered with Jesus for the Passover meal in the upper room where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, communion, in which given the placement of the table and our children's message, you know that today this is something we'll participate in together. The gospel according to Luke tells us that as the, the, the disciples were facing some pretty dangerous times when the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also called Passover, drew near. The high priests and religion scholars were looking for a way to do away with Jesus, but they were afraid they might be associated with the bad deed They wanted to cover their tracks. So leaving the others enters Judas, who conferred with the high priest and the temple guards about how he could betray Jesus to them. They couldn't believe their good luck, and they made an arrangement, and they paid him well. 
And when the day of Passover came, Jesus sent Peter and John off saying, go and prepare the Passover meal for us. We can eat it together. And so they left and they found everything as Jesus told them to expect. And so they prepared the meal. That's the context that we're getting to before we read our passage for today. So that's all happening, and let's take a look at what happens in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, beginning at verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus took his place at the table, and the apostles were with him. Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant, In my blood. This passage, of course, provides us with some important information about the passion narrative, some important aspects of our Christian story, the story leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And if you're here with us fairly often, or if you've been at other churches long enough, you've probably heard those words in the context of communion, celebrating the Lord's Supper. Today is a Sunday, as Leah mentioned, that we're not only participating in communion, but we're also celebrating World Communion Sunday, World Communion Sunday. If you're unfamiliar, World Communion Sunday began at a Presbyterian church in Pittsburgh, and there was a pastor named Reverend Hugh Thompson Kerr, and his congregation sought together to emphasize the unity that we have in Christ Jesus. And so that's what they aimed to celebrate encourage as many churches as possible to celebrate communion on this day and to reflect upon what it means to find one another at this table. In 1940, the Federal Council of Churches adopted it as World Communion Sunday. And so every congregation celebrates it a little bit different. Um, Some have a special offering or a special, uh, special way that they do communion. Maybe they have communion being served by folks who speak different languages to celebrate all of the ways that God's grace breaks in amongst us. One example I read about was a pastor named uh, Daniel Debvoice, and he shared that as their practice of World Communion Sunday, all the people in the congregation made these different kinds of bread, purposefully found recipes from all over the world to make bread together. And they would read this passage from Luke that said, Then people will come from east and west, from north and south, and they will eat in the kingdom of God. And so they had all these abundance of breads, all these different shapes, sizes, and colors. This food, this bread, was given in the the name of the one who said, I am the bread of life. We don't have that tradition here yet, but we could start it next year. Help me remember I was thinking about our practices around communion, our maybe different relationships that we have with this practice of communion. I was corresponding with Monica, who's one of our newest spiritual companions here at BCWC, and she shared some thoughts that struck me as incredibly wise and helpful to me as I was thinking through my own understanding of what it means to receive communion in our congregation. 
She commented on how communion is so much more than what we often reduce it to. We often think of it as something where maybe there's a clergy or other leaders in the congregation who are sort of doling out these sort of small things, right? And that, well, I, I remember, this is a brief aside, I remember being at Princeton Seminary and I, and I felt really out of place, but I remember there being this uh, incredible communion service on World Communion Sunday. But one of the things that was very strange is they said, behold, the feast of the Lord. And there's like these little crackers and like small like cups of cups of like, Oh no, I feel like we're doing it sort of wrong. <laughs> and that reminded me of this, you know, the conversation I was having with Monica, because sometimes we make communion in, into something it's not. We make it too small. We think it's about something where we need to be worthy enough to receive it. We make all kinds of sort of mistakes. And sometimes our practices reinforce the, that reinforces that thinking. So it's a good example, I think, of good intentions, but maybe flawed impact. So we have communion as a reflective practice, and maybe you feel really connected to the way that we do it. We hope that you do. We hope that you find some sense of connection, some realization that God is, uh, is, is present to us all the time, um, and that God has given us these gifts that remind us, help us to remember those important aspects of what it means to be a Christian. But it's not the full extent of what communion can be for the fellowship of believers, right? Communion has the power to be so much more than that. Monica reminded me of this. Communion is enacted even beyond our congregation's worship service, perhaps even um, to an increased extent, to a full extent, or in a very different way. When we go downstairs for our brunch together, when we eat together, we feel the body and the spirit remembering that we are all held in the broken body. Monica wrote to me, every Sunday is Communion Sunday, at BCWC, not just doing the worship service, but in Lowry Hall, that's the body of Christ, broken and gathered, eating and filled, welcomed. On this communion Sunday, we remember that the welcome that we offer is as wide as the world. So here are three more reasons, if I haven't sold you, on why I like World Communion Sunday. First, I grew up in a, a sort of church hopping. If you know my story, I, um, VBS was like free childcare for my family. So we went with the Mennonites and the Presbyterians and the Baptist and Methodists. We just like hung out making cotton ball sheep. <laughs> so I've been always very curious and very interested in the different ways and the different kinds of practices that churches have in the way that they tell this beautiful story of our Lord. And then I sort of church hopped all around and um, have never met a religious person or church building I wasn't interested in learning more about. But there's something really interesting when we think, when we first learn that Christians are very similar but also can be so different in the way that they interpret and understand and enact this love and mercy that we're called to enact. So that's, it's just interesting. It's powerful uh, the way that it's so different. Second, due to the fact that I grew up with these different experiences, I like thinking about World Communion Sunday because communion has, as a child, as an adolescent, as a young adult, made me very uncomfortable because I didn't know the rules. I didn't know the setup. It seemed like something that there would be a lot of rules to, and I wasn't sure if I was allowed to have it, um, doing it correctly. And I love this day because we can remind each other, we can say to one another that all are welcome at this table, and you don't have to worry, you won't mess it up. 
one communion Sunday, my first Easter sunrise service, I had a wonderful pastor with another congregation. We were leading this beautiful service, and I just spilled the juice all over me. <laughs> and she made a really uh, helpful, helpful reframe of it um, that reminded us of, uh, and sort of, as you did, laughed, but I think was um, so helpful to, to understand that we, we're not going to mess this up. This isn't ours to mess up. This is God's to give and ours to receive. So that can let our worry subside a bit. We can take this seriously and respect the message of it and the practice of it while not getting too worried about we would have the power to mess it up. We don't. So I like that. I like that we celebrate that despite the various ways we might practice communion, we join together with the saints before us and around the world to remember Christ's amazing love. And my favorite thing about World Communion Sunday is despite the interesting and challenging and sometimes painful divisions that exist within the Christian church as a whole, on this Sunday, congregations around the world participate knowing that somehow, mysteriously, despite everything, we are one in Christ Jesus. But that despite everything is a lot of stuff, though, right? So we might devolve into trite cliches, but we shouldn't dismiss the difficulty of that calling to work across difference and division. To be able to foster genuine communion with one another is something that is a lifelong task. I can't offer a three-step guide to this, either because I don't know it or it's too hard. (laughs) It requires way more than our own willpower to do, and I think that's the point. We need God to be able to withstand these divisions. I do know that the focus of our last few weeks in this sermon series has been about loving our neighbors. And if we are to love our neighbors, we have to, in our understanding of building unity and bridge building, try to understand more clearly how those bridges have been burnt, to understand the pain of our neighbors. I believe that loving our neighbors means that we have to care about their pain. We have to make space to encounter it, to bear witness to it, We have to invite and make space for it in our lives, in our pulpits, and at the table. There's so much pain in this life, lots of beauty, but a lot of pain. So we have to be attentive to pain that is ours and not ours, especially if we're starting to feel really comfortable at the table. We have to increase our awareness of and our compassion for the pain in our neighbors. And not only are the neighbors who are next to us, but in our workplaces, in our schools, around the world. It's all of that. And that's why I really like this practice. And the children reminded us, when we partake in communion here, it can feel a little uncomfortable. At first, you, um, we stand in a circle. And I just love that. And I love that because it reminds us of Jesus looking at people who don't understand and loving them and responding to them. And thinking, you know, this is a practice that I often like to do during that time, a blessed be the tie that binds when we sing that hymn and circle the sanctuary. And if you're new, you'll see, we're going to circle the sanctuary and sing a hymn. (laughs) Um, When we do that, you can look at each person and think about the richness of the story of their life, the beauty and the pain and all of it, and how God just holds it all. And here we are together bearing witness to that, all of our stories interconnected, trying to tell this one amazing story of God's love. So we have to acknowledge that. And we also have to acknowledge that sometimes our pain comes from our table mates. 
the people at the dinner party, the people at this grand feast. Frankly, there are Christians I'd rather not call my own, (laughs) I'd rather not associate with. There's been a lot of harm done in the name of Jesus, and so much inaction done when there should have been action. And that is frustrating. Sometimes it can feel, as a Christian, you're just doing PR work. I'm a Christian, but not like that. (laughs) And there's room for correction and challenging our brothers and sisters, our siblings in Christ, to be able to say, hey, this is not (laughs) the way that we're called to love. But in these times we come to the table, we pause that work. It's continued. It's actually fulfilled in our participation in the Lord's Supper and the mystery of our faith is that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And the annoying part of our faith is that nothing can separate our worst enemy from the love of God either. Jesus' love is for you and you and you and for me and for people that we'll never see. Jesus' grace is for the people we want to be friends with forever and the people with whom ties we'd rather sever. (laughs) Jesus' mercy is for the people right next door and for the people on every other shore. Whenever we take communion, and especially perhaps on this World Communion Sunday, we nonetheless remember that despite our tendencies to divide and break off and cut off at God's table, these separations and hierarchies of this world fade away, if not fully in this life, in the life to come. But we forget that sometimes, and that's okay, because so did our disciples. That's why we say so much in communion, Jesus said to remember. (laughs) We're so prone to be forgetful in this way. So the scripture passage goes on, and you can follow along in verse 24. Right after Jesus did this, this beautiful thing of telling them exactly what matters, then they start fighting. A dispute also arose among them, as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader, the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, or the one who serves? If Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. This reminds me of, you know, I think I had like a really good moment with my kids and we like had a life lesson and there was like this wisdom, this great thing, and then they like chuck a piece of fruit at me or something or like break into a brawl with one another. My turn, my turn, my turn. We do this. Jesus says, here are these gifts that I'm giving you. And we say, but am I the best because I have this gift first? The table is an incredible symbol of our faith because we are reminded that we have not earned our spot here. (laughs) We can't. We are not greater than others for being here today. Rather, we are blessed to encounter and name the gift of God's grace in our lives and to respond in service service and love to our neighbors. That's actually the whole point of this sermon series we've been going through. We've asked you to take a look at this grid and somewhere in your work, home, school, anything, uh, people you commute with, literally anything, your neighbors, could you get to know them so that you can pray for them? 
not to position them as objects to be won or prospective nominees for an exclusive club. Rather, we love and serve our neighbors in response to God's amazing love. The God who loved us enough to send God's Son to save us from our sins, including the sin of thinking that we might somehow earn our way to God's glory or deserve it more than someone else. And we think about this passage, so often I like to use scripture to interpret scripture. I think that invites a deeper understanding of it. So when we think about this question of glory, we might turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 20, to understand it further. In this passage, Jesus is praying, and here's what Jesus says. Lord God, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. And here's how Jesus describes God's love for him. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prayed that we would know that God loved us like that. He goes on to pray, Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Even in this sort of poetic prayer that uh, John is recording and that Jesus is praying, there's this bringing in to the center of them and me and I and you and all of us just together. In this prayer, we learn that all glory belongs to God, and is only extended to us in order to bring us together and closer to God. The disciples got off track thinking about their own glory, and certainly congregations, churches can get off track too, thinking about being more glorious than the others, with better theology or better music or better preaching. Aren't we the best? But we're not alone in getting off track <laughs> whether the disciples or us, there's a lot of stuff that happened in between, and that's just a cycle that keeps repeating. Sometimes people even divide over the concept of unity itself. One writer described, at the heart of long-standing controversies have been questions, such as whether communion with God and other people is a product of divine grace or human will or both. These quarrels have included sometimes bloody debates over whether Christ's nature is the same as the nature of the one who sent him, fully divine, or the same of that as humans, who he's sometimes bringing into communion with God. Yet despite differing and sometimes sharply conflicting theological perspectives, a longing for deeper unity continues to resurface in the church again and again and again. Our moments of unity with God and with our neighbors allow us hope for the eventual reconciliation of unity with all of humankind. So the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for here is not doctrinal or organizational or political, 
so often Christ's prayer is then used to sanctify those ends and even to justify the harsh imposition of artificial unity. You know this kind of artificial unity when we all say everything's fine, we're all together, but everybody knows what's happening. This happens in our families, in our friendships, in our workplaces. It's fake. It's not the kind of unity Christ is offering us. This prayer for unity grows out of the love of God received and shared amongst followers of Jesus. And it leads to an experienced unity in love between Jesus and his followers and with the one from whom Christ comes. In moments where we come to the table, in moments of communion, those debates, however worthy or unworthy they might be, subside. And in their place, there remains this vision of a table. But like the 18-year-old me who was longing to run away from the college orientation tables, there are so many of us or our neighbors whose fears and doubts keep them from coming to the table of the Lord. There are so many who've been terrified by what they've seen from Christians who bring the elements to their lips on Sunday and speak vile things on Monday from those same lips. There are so many who've been told that pieces of themselves are not worthy of God's table. There are so many who've been told that they can come to the table once they are worthy, as if that were possible. So make a reservation, get in line, and don't forget to follow the dress code. There are so many who've been told, sorry, the seat's taken. But at this table, here's the good news. You don't even need to ask can I sit with you? Jesus saved you a seat. It was always yours. You're part of the family, and there's always room for more. Thanks be to God. At this time, I'll invite Pastor Evan and members of our diaconate to join us as we celebrate communion together, thinking about our siblings in Christ all over the world, past and present. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Church of Westchester podcast. If you have questions, want to connect, or are looking for ways that you can support God's work at this church, visit bcwc.org. And as you go, through whatever your day may throw at you, I want to share this blessing with you. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness, protect you in the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go and be the church.